Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro directors here at LSE, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the school for this evening's joint uh, LSE Columbia public lecture by Professor John Coatsworth on the topic of the foreign policy dilemmas of the US administration in the next four years. If you could now turn off your mobile phones, please, or any other irritating device, that would be very helpful. Um, I'm particularly delighted to welcome John Coatsworth tonight for a number of reasons, but most of all because he's a particularly good friend of LSE. John was Dean of the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University from 2008 to 2011, since which time he's been elevated to the post of Provost of Columbia University. Uh, my LSE colleagues and I have had the enormous pleasure and privilege to work with John both when he was Dean and now as Provost over the past six years as we've tried to strengthen and deepen the relationships between LSE and Columbia. Columbia is one of the main global partners of LSE. As many of you will know, I'm sure, John is a leading scholar of Latin American economic and international history, as well as of foreign policy more generally. At Columbia, he is a professor of international and public affairs and also of history. Before Columbia, John worked at Harvard University, where he served as the Monroe Gutman Professor of Latin American Affairs for 15 years, I think from 1992 to 2007, during 13 of which he also served as the founding director of Harvard's David, Rockef David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies. Prior to that, John actually was a faculty member for over 20 years at the University of Chicago. Uh, Professor Coatsworth is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Council of Foreign Relations, the Board of Directors of the Tinker Foundation, and numerous professional associations. He's also a former president of the American Historical Association and the Latin American Studies Association. In 1986, John was awarded a John Simon Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship. In a long and distinguished career, John has served as senior Fulbright lecturer three times with appointments in Argentina and Mexico, and has received numerous research and institutional grants from public agencies and private foundations. John, we're delighted that you're with us here tonight at LSE, and we look forward to hearing from you. Uh, thank you, Stuart, and thanks also to Mark uh, Maloney, who does such a great job uh, in uh, cementing relationships with other institutions around the, around the globe for LSE. Uh, LSE is a great partner uh, for Columbia University. These are two institutions of global reach and ambition uh, that put research and teaching first. Um, we have benefited immensely from uh, the numbers of LSE students that come to Columbia every year as in our dual degree programs. We have uh, an MA program together in global and world history. Uh, so the ties between our two institutions have been growing. Uh, Mark and Stuart have been instrumental in making sure that they have prospered. Um, uh, I'm especially delighted uh, to have received such a generous and lengthy introduction. Uh, although I don't know if many of you would uh, have had the same experience, but the older you get, 
The more introductions sound like obituaries. Uh, <laughs> longer. <laughs> uh, uh, it is true um, that uh, I spent most of my life as a, a presumed expert on, on Latin America. Uh, but then when I became dean of the Columbia School of International and Public Affairs, uh, the entire world became my responsibility. So I've been trying to catch up ever since. Um, uh, I now have, uh, of course, the best job uh, anywhere. Um, being the provost of Columbia, um, and that's largely because no one knows what a provost is for. <laughs> so if things don't get done that, are, that need to be done, uh, people will recognize that something's happened that's amiss, but they won't quite know that I'm the one responsible for not uh, doing what's missing. Uh, so I'm, as I say, delighted to be here. Um, I feel doubly at home because um, you've imported a New Yorker uh, as your new director. Uh, and to make it possible for Craig to come here, uh, we gave up one of our most distinguished faculty members, Ira Katz-Nelson, in our political science department to take over the Social Sciences Research Council. So the collaboration between our two institutions uh, couldn't be closer. Um, I think I should begin with a confession. And the confession is that I'm actually much more interested in what you think uh, about the future of international relations in the next four years than I am in listening to myself um, say what I uh, speculate may be in store for us. Um, so I urge you uh, in the course of the next few minutes if you have questions um, for the question and answer period to um, uh, not to um, confine yourselves to short questions but to um, rehearse speeches and comments and uh, <laughs> opinions, because uh, they're much more interesting to me uh, than whatever I will say to you. Um, so let me begin with what I think are the two major long-run challenges that um, confront the United States in the international arena. Then I'll point out what I think are the three principal challenges or obstacles, uh, the three obvious constraints that will prevent the United States from doing all that it might to meet those challenges. And finally, I'll make a quick survey through uh, the better part of the world to say what I think are going to be the major issues that will be confronted by the Obama administration and try to say something about why I think um, they're going to be met in the way uh, I expect they will be uh, and to the extent that they will be. So I think the two principal challenges in the long run for American foreign policy uh, in this century are, can best be summarized as, as questions. The first is, can the United States mobilize and effective deploy, effectively deploy its current resources of both hard and soft power to strengthen international norms, regulatory uh, regimes, and institutions sufficiently to secure protection for its vital economic and security interests in a distant future, perhaps a not so distant future, when it will no longer be the world's preeminent economic and military power. In a sense, this is a problem similar to what Britain faced at the end of World War II. And it found a partner and a set of institutions that um, in made post-war Britain eventually uh, the success uh, that it is today. Whether the United States will be able to meet that same challenge in a much more complicated world remains to be seen. 
the, the second challenge, I think, that in the long run that American foreign policy faces is whether it can use these same resources of hard and soft power so effectively as to secure the global community's capacity to make life on Earth sustainable. That is to say, will the United States have sufficient leverage, at least in the near term, near to medium term, to leverage uh, its hard and soft power in a way that will make it possible or contribute to making it possible for the, for the global community to respond to climate change, uh, to the, the problem of human development, and to the issues of civic and human rights around the globe. That is, will the United States uh, be able um, to make life on Earth more sustainable, perhaps even more agreeable for um, human uh, and other life forms? Um, the success that the United States uh, could have in helping the planet contribute to the challenge of climate change and other life-threatening problems may depend in part, of course, on how well the U.S. meets the first challenge, that is, of strengthening international norms, regulatory regimes, and institutions. These two principal long-term challenges, of course, interact. Success in building institutions could make sustainability easier to achieve, while the global dimensions and urgency of confronting climate change could help to push reluctant partners to collaborate with spillover effects in key areas of economic and security policy. Or things could just get worse and worse. <clears throat> the three main constraints, the three major constraints that face U.S. foreign policy making uh, in the near to medium term, I think, are easily summarized. The first, perfectly obvious, is that the United States cannot achieve any significant goals in foreign policy by itself. Globalization has made unilateralism the foreign policy associated with traditional isolationist sentiments in the U.S. more self-destructive than ever before. That was the major lesson that the United States learned, again, uh, during the period of the George W. Bush administration um, uh, in the early part of this century. The second point uh, is perhaps equally obvious, and that is that the U.S. capacity to shape the international environment is finite and probably diminishing. But the extent and shape of those limitations on U.S. capacity and the rate of relative decline in U.S. power have yet to be tested. And the rate of decline given the parlous state of much of the rest of the world, may itself, in relative terms, um, itself, uh, be uh, slowing down. The U.S. share of world GDP has more or less remained stable at about 25% uh, for the last period of years. And in addition, the United States has recently uh, developed the technology that may, will make it possible for it to achieve energy independence in and hydrocarbons within uh, a very short space of time. It has already begun to reduce substantially its dependence on imported oil, and it is going to shortly become a net exporter of uh, liquid nat natural gas. So the change um, in the world 
uh, that would limit American power, changes in the world that would limit American power from an economic point of view, may turn out to be less constraining than we had once thought. Third point, third constraint, uh, or the third point, I guess, is that um, the magnitude of the constraints on U.S. foreign policy and the rate of U.S. relative decline depend in no small degree on the U.S. itself and to a large extent on the evolution of its domestic politics. The question that remains open, I think, is the question whether or not the United States will be able to develop and implement effective long-term economic security and foreign policies in the face of domestic political divisions that are magnified by our 18th century constitution and the, by the distorting effects of money on our electoral processes. So those, I think, are the three main constraints. Globalization, which limits our capacity, U.S. capacity to accomplish its goals alone. The relative decline of the United States in economic terms, which may be slowing. And the principal constraint from many points of view, that is <coughs> uh, American domestic politics. So now let me turn to the two Obama administrations, <coughs> looking first at what has been accomplished or what has not been accomplished in the last four years, uh, and then what may be coming. But I feel I should um, clarify at the outset that I am not now, nor have I ever been, an employee of the United States government, <coughs> at least not since I distributed mail during Christmas holidays as an undergraduate in college. And I have no ambition ever to become an employee of the U.S. government, and no inside information or gossip to pass on. Uh, nor, I should probably make clear, do I speak for Columbia University, which, as you know, has no voice whatsoever. <laughs> so if one looks at the first Obama administration, the past four years, it seems fairly clear that the U.S. administration has not made much direct progress on the two main challenges I mentioned earlier, that of building institutions uh, in, the global, uh, in the global economy uh, and society, or in securing life on Earth. Perhaps the biggest achievement of the Obama administration's first five, four years was its relatively rapid restoration of U.S. soft power, as it's called, uh, which is well reflected in public opinion as well as elite opinion polls around the world that suggest that there has been a bounce back uh, from the depths to which uh, American repute had sunk during the Bush administration. And this despite the U.S. financial crisis um, and uh, the dysfunctional U.S. internal political turmoil. Um, perhaps the biggest misstep of the last four years was uh, the manipulation of a UN Security Council resolution on India, which Russia and China quite properly interpreted as authorizing intervention solely for the purpose of protecting uh, uh, humans, human life, uh, and which the United States um, and its allies in NATO used um, to, um, um, as an authorization to overthrow the Gaddafi regime. Um, otherwise, as near as I can tell, the administration has done no great harm that would make a future um, efforts 
to strengthen international institutions more difficult. It did contribute to building the G20 as a powerful consultative body. It gets good marks on muddling through the global economic crisis, uh, despite domestic disputes on that issue. But it did not develop a grand strategy on global governance issues, um, either with respect to the UN itself uh, or any of a number of uh, serious international issues uh, stretching all the way to the now virtually abandoned Doha round of global trade talks. And there have been no major achievements on sustainability issues, especially in the uh, critically important area of controlling greenhouse, ga greenhouse gases. So this is a, not a record of disaster uh, and confrontation, but it is not a record of great achievement either. In the next four years, much of what the United States in the second Obama administration will be able to accomplish may depend critically on the speed of the U.S. domestic political transition, something that I don't have much time to discuss. Um, but there is some evidence that this transition uh, forms uh, part of the Obama administration's new tougher line in domestic policy, which we saw in a, uh, in a very straightforward inaugural address yesterday. A strategy that seems to be aiming toward the 2014 by-elections with the aim of restoring democratic control in Congress. You may know that uh, uh, the, in the past elections, last November, the House of Representatives remained in Republican hands, but the total votes for Congress in the United States for Democratic candidates was greater. And the reason why Republicans were able to retain control of the House, although with a reduced, substantially reduced majority, uh, is because of local gerrymandering of election districts at the state level. Every 10 years, our Constitution requires state governments to um, reorder election districts to take into account demographic changes that have taken place in the meantime. And some states lose representatives, and some, some that are gaining in population gain them. Since 29 uh, of our state governments are in control of Republicans, they have managed to contrive new electoral districts that resulted in the congressional races um, this past fall, in which Democratic majorities have been concentrated in a small number of districts and 60% or so Republican majorities spread out among as many districts as possible. So this accounts for why the House of Representatives is still in Republican control, despite the fact that Democratic candidates for Congress received more votes. None of this, including the loss of a series of Senate seats the Republicans confidently expected to gain, um, uh, none of this um, uh, is, um, is, has gone unnoticed uh, by the Republican leadership, uh, which has just developed a new strategy on how to deal with negotiations or the lack of negotiations over our famous debt limit. <clears throat> what the 2012 elections therefore made clear, even in the case of the House of Representatives, is that there is a slow motion, perhaps slow, but palpable political decline of three powerful, powerful currents in American political life. The first is that complex of nativist, anti-immigrant, and racist sentiment um, represented to some extent in the Tea Party uh, and in the Republican Party more generally, 
which is becoming less and less consequential as the electorate in the United States becomes more diverse. This current was revived um, in the anger and frustration that followed the Great Recession, uh, but it is, I think, uh, experiencing its last gasp as a major factor in American political life. <clears throat> the second is the equally complex and religion-based social conservatism that has tended to focus on issues of family values, um, abortion, sex sexual orientation, and the like, which is also slowly losing appeal as younger voters go to the polls. That transition there is likely to be slower, but it was quite measurable in the last elections. And finally, um, one could point to the discredited but still powerful neoconservatism in foreign policy fought, um, which itself as well as is declining as well as Cold War as the Cold War generation passes, uh, fiscal constraints on defense spending become more urgent, and the political base uh, the political base for unilateralism in foreign policy uh, fades and dissolves. So I think these are the three interesting developments uh, that characterize the American political transition and the extent to which they are reflected in the elections, the by-elections of 2014 will have a considerable impact on the way foreign policy is conducted in the last two years of the, uh, uh, of the Obama administration and planning to make sure that it happens faster uh, is likely to have an influence on how the Obama administration behaves in the next two years. So uh, having talked about these more general issues, let me look at four areas of foreign policy making, only, only one of which I can claim to have some expertise on. Uh, I'll look first at the Middle East, then at Latin America, and then briefly at American policy toward Western Europe and East and South Asia, especially China. The Middle East is clearly um, the top strategic priority for American policymakers now because it's the part of the world where catastrophes are, the, are most easily imagined out of the current circumstances. In August of 2008, sorry, in, uh, yes, in August of 2008, before the presidential election that brought um, Barack Obama uh, to power, Zbigniew Brzezinski was summoned to meet with uh, the Democratic candidate at his home in Chicago and was asked um, by Barack Obama what should be um, his foreign policy priorities um, should he win uh, the coming elections in November. And Brzezinski's response to that question was the Middle East and that's the only thing that you need to worry about. This is the one part of the world where things could go terribly wrong and very quickly. And by the Middle East, he meant um, all of that great swath of area from Afghanistan uh, through Pakistan um, and around to North Africa. <clears throat> this seemed to be uh, reflected in the early policies of the Obama administration and its, um, and its strategy as it emerged. The strategy essentially became to use a new focus on Afghanistan where we were clearly losing ground as political cover to exit Iraq. Then prosecute the war on terrorism as uh, firmly and aggressively as possible to minimize dissent from the right and provide the beginnings of political cover f 
for an exit from Afghanistan. The re-election was the crowning moment in the success of that strategy, and within days after the election took place, the President cheerfully announced that American troops would be out of Afghanistan not by the end of 2014, as he had originally promised, but by the end of 2013. The other elements of the American strategy uh, during the first Obama administration were to contain Iran, despite the fact that the uh, overthrow of Saddam Hussein had um, empowered that regime considerably as a, as a regional power in the Middle East, and to do so without military force, to manage Pakistan as well as possible, and to secure um, a solution to the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict. Brzezinski also said to Barack Obama in answer to his question that a solution to the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis early in the new administration would make anything else that Barack Obama wanted to do in the Middle East infinitely easier and failure to do so would make anything Barack Obama wanted to do in the Middle East infinitely more difficult. He failed. Not only did he fail in solving the intractable Arab-Israeli conflict, but he became as well distracted by Iran's nuclear ambitions and surprised by the Arab Spring. All of these uh, factors complicated policymaking for the Obama administration in that part of the world enormously. And policymaking in the Middle East um, for anybody, certainly for the United States, is still complicated. But the most important thing that Barack Obama achieved in his four years was that he made no major irreversible or costly blunder blunders. So what w could we expect in a second term? I would speculate that in Barack Obama's second term, we will begin to see the impact of declining U.S. dependence on Middle Eastern oil. The tendency on the part of the United States to want to lead from behind rather than ahead, which we saw emerge uh, in the case of Libya, is likely to become more pronounced. And the people we would like most to, Barack Obama would like most to lead from behind, are the Europeans. This strategy is not likely to be successful, since, as you know, Europe's disunity on foreign policy issues, and much else, uh, is not likely to produce um, a sufficiently aggressive foreign policy in the Middle East as to make it possible for the United States to hide behind you. The United States will um, exit Afghanistan, as it did Iraq, and without any domestic fallout, and as I said, on a faster track than initially planned. This, is an important, this will be an important achievement. How important it is um, as a commitment to a strategy in the Middle East and the world as a, as a whole, you can see in the uh, Obama administration's, uh, Obama's choice of his foreign policy team uh, and security team for the second administration. He has chosen two Vietnam veterans, one a Republican, Chuck Hagel is Defense Secretary, the other a Democrat, um, John Kerry is Secretary of State, both of whom opposed to one degree or another the American intervention in Iraq. 
Hagel eventually ended up voting for it, but expressed considerable misgivings that his Republican colleagues have not forgiven him for before he voted. The other principal uh, nominee of the administration uh, is John Brennan as uh, director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Brennan is a supporter of the strategy of making aggressive use of um, unmanned drone aircraft uh, in the fight against international terrorism and is on record as having uh, the view that what the Bush people discreetly referred to as enhanced interrogation techniques can be useful and were useful in securing for American intelligence um, information that was critical in fighting the war on terrorism. So we are going to see a balance between non-interventionism on the one hand and very aggressive use of intelligence assets uh, and unmanned uh, drone aircraft on the other. At least that's what these, uh, that's the choice that seems to have been made um, in the selection of these and other appointments to the administration. This suggests that the current strategy, the current American strategy of staying out of Syria, of not even considering the possibility of putting boots on the ground, um, and using other assets to influence, uh, other means to influence events there is likely to continue. And there will be a concerted effort, I would suspect, to try and get Europeans to take responsibility uh, for Syria and much else that happens in the Middle East, as I said. On the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict, there do not seem to be good prospects for <coughs> uh, undertaking uh, a, a solution to this 50-year uh, conflict. There are few prospects um, for success, and there are no good partners. And it is a question. I think, whether or not the United States can really play a constructive role uh, at all. It is not uh, um, playing a mediator in a conflict where the United States is actually a partisan on one side um, is not likely to be successful. So the outcome of that conflict, if it is uh, resolved in the next few years, is likely to depend more on the action of others, I would think, than on uh, anything that the United States will do. The problem is, who are the others that will help to mediate a conflict in which the United States is a part? The United States has been a partisan participant. On Iran, which is the other um, major issue, and the one area of American foreign policy making in which catastrophic developments could occur, I am skeptical, as many are, that the sanctions regime despite its uh, obvious uh, impact, will produce results. If it is left um, without diplomatic initiatives sufficient to secure, um, sufficient to convince the Iranians that the United States uh, is willing um, uh, to abandon regime change as a goal of policy uh, and give security, uh, security assurances to the leadership of that regime. How this plays out, I think, will take uh, time um, to tell. But what is most notable is the difference between the US calendar and the Israeli calendar when it comes to uh, responding to this presumed threat. 
the U.S. position has been that no military action is needed until there is clear evidence that the Iranians have decided to develop a nuclear weapon. And absent such evidence to this point, which both Israeli and U.S. intelligence seem to agree upon, that the United States will be reluctant to move or even to support an Israeli move. The Israeli calendar is different. The Israelis believe that they must strike, or so they say, as soon as Iran is nearing a capacity to develop a nuclear weapon, not waiting for them to make the decision to do so and for evidence of that decision to become um, available to intelligence agencies, but to strike as soon as Iran reaches a point in its capacity to uh, generate <coughs> uh, nuclear material that would suggest that if they wished to make a nuclear weapon, they could then do so within some definable period of time. Experts generally uh, calculate as a year or two. This difference between the U.S. and the Israeli calendar may prove crucial to events that occur in U.S.-Iranian policy and U.S.-Middle Eastern policy over the next um, few months and years. My own bet is that the U.S. calendar will prevail despite immense pressures, both domestic and international. <clears throat> so now let me switch to, um, from the top priority of the U.S. foreign policy making in the next few years <clears throat> to what is likely to be near the bottom, um, along with Africa, that is, Latin America. Um, the wonderful thing about Latin America is that um, the United States has finally um, reached the conclusion that it can't, um, that it poses no threat to American security. And in the Obama administration, um, you will recall, I, I can recall as many of you could, um, President Reagan looking directly at the camera and, uh, and, and telling us all how much we had to fear from Nicaragua, right? <laughs> that two million Nicaraguans would cross a jungle and two mountain ranges and persuade then 80 million Mexicans to become implacably hostile to the United States and that this threat was of such a great uh, magnitude that we had to pour resources into Central America to um, control its political outcomes. Um, we're past that period, I'm happy to say. <clears throat> and indeed, the temptation to move back, uh, even in, rhetorical, in a rhetorical sense, to those bad old days was resisted by the administration, by the Obama administration, right from the start. Um, it has succeeded, uh, if that was its aim, to take Latin America off the agenda of urgent issues, uh, except for drugs and immigration. And these are two issues that have domestic political salience, which is why people in the White House pay any attention to Latin America at all, as near as I can tell. Um, the most important thing that the administration did was to put an end to the Manichaean rhetoric that divided Latin America into good guys and bad guys, and the, the bad guys, all of those that um, uh, got along with Hugo Chavez, uh, and the good guys, all of those that criticized him. On the two issues that have domestic political salience, um, some change um, uh, in policy may develop, but it's difficult to see how far those changes will be. In the area of um, the drug prohibition regime, um, which seems to be frozen, there are new signs that there may be some element of flexibility 
or at least a pressure toward flexibility that the administration will have to face. Two American states voted by referendum in the last election to legalize marijuana. And near as I can tell, the U.S. federal government has not decided whether or not it's going to arrest people who are doing in Colorado and Washington, I think, uh, what state law says is legal but federal law says is not. Um, we'll just have to see how that plays out. Um, but the pressure to change American drug laws comes not only internally, it also comes increasingly from Latin America itself. Um, surprisingly, um, the general um, who runs Guatemala uh, was the person, uh, the, the only chief of state, uh, Latin American chief of state in office to openly question uh, the drug interdiction regime and has been joined by others so that this has now become an agenda for inter-American discussions for the first time uh, in history. There are pressures um, that emanate from the U.S. relationship with Mexico uh, that may be uh, somewhat mitigated by uh, new legislation and, and um, executive orders that will make it more difficult to export large quantities of arms to Mexico. But there are also likely to be pressures as the new Mexican government adopts different policies uh, than the policies of the Calderon administration, policies that are less likely to employ the army <coughs> um, as an instrument of the drug war and more likely to try and build up police and judicial institutions uh, uh, to fight crime in general. What that implies for drug interdiction in Mexico uh, is hard to say. Um, Mexico's former foreign minister, Jorge Castaneda, and I have often talked about this since we teach a course together. I think Jorge's view, to distort a bit, um, is that Mexico would do well to mark a highway that runs from the Guatemalan border north to Texas with a sign that says, if you don't leave this road, you can ship anything you want to the United States. Um, um, I think that's a, probably a bit extreme. But there are many in Mexico that believe that solving America's drug consumption problem is not should not really be at the top of their uh, their agenda, their public policy agenda. On the immigration issue, um, this is likely to become uh, a matter of declining significance uh, for uh, relations between the United States and other countries, um, in basically for two reasons. First, because the the net flow of immigration from Mexico to the United States seems to have ceased the number of people coming in, coming into the United States, um, documented and undocumented, is about the same as the number of people returning to Mexico uh, during the recession. And although there may be some imbalance, the fact that the United States Embassy in Mexico City has now been issuing many more uh, work permits, uh, work visas, to Mexican citizens that want to travel peacefully to the United States um, ha has helped to reduce the dimensions of this problem considerably. <coughs> The second reason why this problem may disappear is because the election results in 2012, when the percentage of Hispanic voters in the United States increased from 9 to 17 percent and is rising rapidly still, now makes a comprehensive immigration reform, or at least some immigration reform, more likely than um, it has been at any time since uh, the 1980s. In the long run, I think American policy in Latin America will be influenced to a great extent by the slow decline of U.S. influence um, in the region as other economic partners become more important 
uh, and as their economic importance is followed by um, interest group and political significance. Um, I would expect that over the next decade, one would see a kind of um, shrinkage of American leverage, if you will, to a, a region roughly circumscribed by the areas in which the United States asserted control in the late 19th century, that is, to Mexico, the Caribbean, uh, and Central America, with much less influence over the developments in, in, South, in most of South America. In the meanwhile, um, I think the current American policy of continuing to uh, deal with um, left-wing regimes in the region on a bilateral basis and without ten tending to characterize those relationships uh, and giving them any greater significance than they have is likely to continue. Um, what we don't know is the extent to which um, the administration, the, the uh, Obama administration, will renew its attempts to compose its differences with Cuba. There were concerted efforts at the beginning of the current administration uh, to do so. Uh, they led to a series of talks in out-of-the-way places, uh, but they did not result in any significant progress. The principal obstacle, um, as far as I know, to the resumption of these talks and to some progress in them has been the, uh, the demand of the two sides for release of prisoners. The U.S. demands the release of Benjamin Gross, who was, elected in, who was arrested and tried under Cuban law uh, and is now in jail with a rather long sentence. And the Cubans demand the release of the Miami Five, one of whom is out on parole already. Uh, and since the United States is not willing to release the Miami Five, these folks that were arrested for spying not on the United States government but on uh, Cuban-American exile groups um, uh, and convicted and sent to federal prison, um, uh, and Benjamin Gross, the uh, the contractor for the U.S. State Department. Um, the fact that neither side seems willing to, to budge on this issue is likely to present an obstacle to um, any rapprochement between Cuba and the United States, although <coughs> there is some uh, sentiment in the administration, I am told, uh, that to the effect that um, a renewal of some effort to compose differences with Cuba might, um, might be profitable. There is a uh, at least some in the White House believe this is third-hand gossip um, uh, that, the, that uh, a change of administration in Venezuela depending on the outcome could well affect Cuba's attitude toward the United States and its willingness to talk uh, I rather discount this but, it, um, but there is uh, certainly an argument to be made and among the American public the sentiment seems to be growing even in the Cuban-American communities of Florida and New Jersey um, that the reforms that have been undertaken during the Raul Castro administration these last few years have been serious and substantial enough to warrant some response on the part of the United States, independently of whether or not uh, this American citizen in Cuban jail is released. So <clears throat> I would expect uh, that in the next four years, if we're lucky, Latin America will continue to fly under the U.S. radar screen. Um, but I would also say that the links of Latin American policy uh, to domestic political, uh, the domestic political transition and to interest groups within the United States uh, is, a, is a constant source of volatility. So there is a potential for a kind of Honduran-like uh, renewal of conflict between, between the United States and its allies or between the United States and any one of the countries, particularly in the region where we exert, we continue to exert 
um, considerable influence. So let me conclude with a few remarks on Western Europe and East Asia. The context for American policymaking in this part of the world is a shift, as you know, in economic and strategic power from west to east, from the US and Western Europe to East Asia. We're told that constantly, so it must be true. Um, the two major issues for the United States um, in Western Europe um, are the European economic recovery, um, which is critical uh, to the United States for the U.S. economic recovery and for whatever ambitions the United States might have for Europe to play a more prominent role in parts of the world where we would like to play a less prominent role. In the case of China, the critical issue is how we manage to balance China um, versus the rest of Asia. In the case of Western Europe, the United States was uh, ineffective uh, despite considerable pressure and constant badgering um, in averting the austerity measures which European governments seem to be taking uh, with considerable abandon. Um, the U.S. could be helpful uh, should it choose to be and should Europe be welcoming uh, in supporting institutional developments that might deepen the European Union's capacity to avoid or cope with future crises. There's even been a suggestion, uh, which one hears in Washington but not so much in Europe, about the possibility for the development of a free trade agreement between the European Union and the United States, which would have all kinds of complications, um, mostly in agriculture, but which would create a free trade area uh, in the North Atlantic that could be um, enormously powerful uh, in the world. Um, but whether or not this is a likely prospect, you would know better than I. In the case of East, uh, East Asia, the principal problem facing American foreign policy is how to manage relations with China. Um, and the two views are that the, the problem is how to balance, on the one hand, the need for a geopolitical balancing of the rest of Asia against China and for the development of an economic partnership with China, which is crucial for the United States as well. What's important in that relationship is that these two uh, impulses of American policy, balancing against China and developing an economic partnership, not subvert one the other. It's not impossible for this to do, uh, to, to be achieved, but it certainly will be tricky. Wiser people than I um, are wrestling with this. Um, Thinking of historical parallels, um, however, could make one optimistic. In, in the 19th century, Britain faced, confronted a huge challenge to its economic and political influence in Latin America from an obstreperous and often unmanageable but clearly ascendant economic powerhouse. Um, as an economic partner, the U.S. was vital to Britain's economy, but the U.S also competed in both economic and geopolitical terms with British interests throughout various parts of the world and no nowhere with greater ferocity than Latin America. Britain and the United States actually backed opposite sides in numerous um, internal civil wars in Latin America, perhaps most dramatically uh, in Central America, where the civil wars were more interminable than elsewhere, uh, where the British often ended up on the opposite side of, the, of civil wars. Uh, to the United States. But by, by the end of the 19th century, however, Britain had accommodated itself um, to 
U.S. preeminence in the Caribbean, so long as it didn't threaten uh, British interests uh, that were already established in its colonies in the region. Britain withdrew from the Mosquito Coast of Nicaragua under pressure from the United States. It did not uh, lift a finger to help Spain retain Cuba and Puerto Rico. Um, it accommodated cheerfully to the United States seizure of a rather large part of Colombian national territory to build a canal. Uh, and it did so for two, of course, important reasons. One, economic. The economic partnership was, with the United States was much more important than uh, anything in Latin America uh, that was at stake, particularly in the Caribbean. And secondly, because British leaders made the strategic judgment that preserving their alliance with the United States in case of a possible war in Europe was more important than any interest that they would be sacrificing in places like the Mosquito Coast or Panama. And then after World War I and again after World War II, Britain made essentially the same judgment um, as the U.S. supplanted British interests in much of uh, South America. The, the parallels between Britain's successful coping with the United States, no mean feat, I must say, um, and, uh, and the process of, that the Americans are facing in coping with an ascendant China, um, the parallels are not precise, and the process in the case of Britain and the U.S. got bumpy at times, but in the long run, I think the U.S. will probably have to face similar strategic issues in East Asia and will accommodate in pretty much the same way. The big challenge here is elsewhere uh, for the United States and for policymakers in the United States is that the resources at U.S. disposal are overbalanced to the military side. We spend um, billions and billions of dollars every year on maintaining the world's largest by far military establishment, which means that whenever, and very much less on foreign aid and the development of, inst of international institutions on s instruments of soft power and the like, which means when a president of the United States sits down at his desk and has a problem and looks at the instruments available to him for solving that problem, he says an enormous military that can be deployed immediately to do all kinds of dramatic things, and he sees a tiny diplomatic service, very little foreign aid, and not much of a budget to accomplish other things uh, uh, using a different instrument. In the long run, this raises the, the question that I started at the, uh, out at uh, the beginning with, which is how the, the importance of using whatever resources the United States does have, either of hard or of soft power, in strengthening international norms, regulatory regimes, and institutions. So what I don't see clearly is how the Obama administration, faced with these kinds of issues in the international arena, is going to be able to make progress um, either on institutional development in the global, in the, in global society or in sustainability issues um, over the next four years. The disconnect between the short to medium term American foreign policy thinking and what is really needed to, for, to serve American interests in the longer run never has seemed to me more, more significant uh, than it is today. So I wouldn't um, expect a great deal from the new Obama administration that you haven't seen already, uh, but I'm, I would be delighted to be surprised. Thank you all very much. I'd be happy to respond to questions. Thanks, John, for that wonderful overview of U.S. foreign policy options and dilemmas.
Usually at this point I'm going to call three questioners and ask them to say their names and to keep the questions short and sharp. Uh, but John has said that we can go for longer questions as well. Um, but do perhaps give your name at the beginning. Uh, a microphone will come to you. There's a gentleman upstairs if we've got a microphone there. Take a gentleman at the back afterwards. Hello. Uh, good evening, John. Miguel Lim from the up here. Miguel from the LSE. Yeah, John. Um, just to talk about the last point that you you mentioned, because we hear a lot about um, a lot of this rhetoric about um, the uh, American pivot to Asia, um, which you you touched that towards the end. I'm quite surprised at how matter-of-factly you say that. Uh, Ameri I mean about America's preoccupation about balancing China against the rest of the countries in the region. I'm not quite sure that that's uh, how well some people um, see it, or at least not that straightforwardly, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, there seem to be some nuances on the part of um, other countries. I mean, uh, I know that it's not the area that you deal with, but could you also speak to the domestic constituency? Is there, I mean, we understand how um, in the Middle East, for instance, or in Latin America, there are domestic constituencies in the, in the United States that affect foreign policy in this region. But uh, is there, are there currents in domestic policy that sort of um, affect the dynamics of this pivot to Asia? Um, so there are two issues here, really. Um, the first is the extent to which the United States is willing and able to deploy military assets to um, balance against China and, in a sense, protect the interests of other countries in the region that may feel threatened to one degree or another. So I think that um, the domestic constituency for a militarized balancing policy seems to me to be um, a bit limited. Um, the United States did, without much hue and cry domestically, uh, decline Vietnam's uh, invitation to reoccupy the naval base at Cam Ranh Bay because it didn't want to become so closely identified with Vietnamese interests in the South China Sea uh, as, to, uh, as to suggest, as would be suggested, were the United States um, to reopen its naval base there. Um, there is a powerful constitu constituency in the U.S. Uh, in favor of maintaining and expanding and deepening the American um, uh, economic relationship with China, even an economic partnership with China. Uh, it is balanced at election time by protectionist rhetoric. Depending on the election, it's either Democrat or Republican. This time it happened to be Republican, but it's, uh, it's generally primary rhetoric that doesn't get into the, the general election campaign. There doesn't seem to be a domestic constituency of any size outside of the uh, portions of the American labor movement, which represent now only about uh, 10 or 12 percent of our workforce, um, and then not a majority of it, uh, for a, a policy that would undermine the economic partnership. So my sense is that the United States is going to try and balance these two um, um, foreign policy goals, balance the balancing uh, against the economic partnership. And, and I, my sense is that there are no domestic constituents, there's no domestic constituency for a policy of moving too far one way or the other. Um, hi, my name is Amparam, I'm a high school student. And um, my question is in relation to the Second Amendment uh, with, uh, in relation to uh, Iran. Um, many Republicans uh, feel that uh, the Second Am uh, Amendment gives a uh, uh, guns, uh, uh, gives the American rights to uh, any amount of guns they want. And um, do you think the Obama administration should use the strategy of that to stop military action? Um, because 
by saying that um, uh, because they say that it, it makes you safer having more guns. So should they say that uh, because um, in relation to Iran having more nuclear weapons, should they um, st to stop military action? Should they say that um, if that makes you safer? That's interesting. I've never heard that um, gun control and, and the Second Amendment in the same sentence with uh, uh, with uh, Iran. Uh, but it, it, there's a certain logic to that. Uh, so um, the, the, the president of the National Rifle Association went on TV right after the massacre of children in Newtown, Connecticut, to say uh, that the National Rifle Association, which opposes any form of gun control uh, legislation, uh, believes that there should be a policeman, an armed policeman, stationed in every public school in the United States. And this would solve the, the problem of um, uh, school massacres. Um, on the Iranian side, <laughs> I'm leaping for a level of abstraction that brings these two together. Uh, uh, on the Iranian side, the, the Iranians are clearly uh, of, a, of the same mind. That is, the Iranians believe accurately that they are threatened and they have been offered very little uh, in the way of protection um, by the international community for their own um, uh, ambitions um, uh, and their uh, and their move to try and develop nuclear weapons is clearly related to their their security concerns which the United States uh, it seems uh, relu reluctant to allay so there is there is a possibility in the case of uh, uh, on the weapon side, uh, that there will be an effort to control uh, better the, um, uh, the weapons regime within the United States um, through mitigating measures. And there is certainly a possibility for negotiation with Iran, uh, which might begin quietly in the next few months, to see whether there's some set of steps that the United States could take to reassure the leadership of that country that it is not out, uh, it, that the United States will, will not pursue regime change. Um, so, uh, I think that's about the best I can do. <laughs> oh, it's a few hands now. Um, go to a lady in the middle, um, and then boat behind. Yes, um, thank you. I'm Colleen Casey. I'm from King's College, and. I just was wondering what your thoughts were on Guantanamo Bay, because despite promises to close, it hasn't, yep. doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. And then the three Supreme Court cases, Boumediene, Hamdi, Hamdan, basically made it so there's a lot of rights extended to prisoners there. So do you think that for Guantanamo Bay to function as it was intended to, Congress is going to need to suspend the writ of habeas corpus? Um. I think the, the Obama administration wanted to close um, uh, Guantanamo, um, and it had a, a plan for doing so. And the plan was to repatriate those prisoners who uh, were either innocent uh, or had served uh, for whatever minor things they had done long enough. And there was, in fact, a consistent effort to reduce the population. It's now down to about 175. Uh, over the course of the four years of the Obama administration. And then um, the second part of that policy was to take the remaining prisoners out of Guantanamo and move them to the United States into a secure facility, I believe in Illinois, which the state government for some reason hadn't been able to, uh, to, to use, but which had been built. And 
and to get it ready for these very dangerous people from Guantanamo would only have required a couple of hundred million dollars. So the administration went to Congress and said, please give us $200 million to out re-outfit this prison that's already been built for, so that we can move prisoners from Guantanamo to the U.S. and then those that are, um, uh, are guilty of, that we believe guilty of crimes can be processed in the U.S. judicial system. Um, and the Congress refused to appropriate a penny. And in fact passed resolutions uh, which uh, denied the administration the right to move prisoners to the U.S., although there's some question about the constitutionality of those constraints. Um, so the administration then moved to Plan B, which was to get even more of the prisoners out to other countries, and to begin, finally, trying some of them under the, um, the, the rules that require them to be tried in a military court with all kinds of constraints on their capacity to defend themselves. There are even a number of people uh, in Guantanamo today, um, Chinese Uyghurs, um, uh, some two dozen of which, I think, uh, are known to be totally innocent of ever having done anything uh, to harm any American or even to have any intent to do so. Uh, and they're there because um, the fear is that repatriating them to their native country uh, would place them in uh, equal or greater jeopardy than they are in sitting in Guantanamo. So my sense of this is that the Guantanamo is likely to remain open for some more years um, and that it's, the administration will move as quickly as it can given the cum cumbersome circumstances that it finds itself in to close it. But I think as a symbol of, of um, human rights abuse uh, and violation of international law, it's likely to be, remain right at the top of a lot of our lists for some time to come. Thank you. Yeah, you got the microphone. Uh, thank you. Uh, Ryan Collins. I'm a visiting student here at LSC, originally from George Washington University in DC. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask about America's policy towards Cuba and its current uh, political climate. Mm -hmm. uh, like, like you mentioned, after the past election, the rise to prominence of uh, Hispanic voters has gotten many people in the Republican Party mm -hmm. for the first time talking about reaching out to Hispanic voters. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that Cuban Americans have always been one of the more conservative-leaning blocks of Hispanic voters, and the fact that they're uh, centered in Florida, which is a key electoral state, mm -hmm. uh, makes it an obvious first choice for Republicans to reach out towards them in their process of creating a larger coalition. Mm -hmm. And I think the rise to prominence of Marco Rubio in the party also shows that this could be a feasible possibility. Mm -hmm. So I want to know if you think it's feasible that Cuban Americans could adopt the Republican Party and this, what this could mean for uh, U.S. policy towards Cuba in the near future. Well, Cuban Americans are the only uh, substantial Latino ethnic group in the United States um, that uh, that vote that have voted historically uh, Republican uh, for decades, um, but that um, historic tendency has begun to decline. Um, and in the last election, um, while Republicans did gain most of the Cuban American vote, they um, got the lowest percentage of the Cuban American vote they had it, have gotten in in, in in the recent past. Um, and if you look at public opinion polls on Cuba and on the embargo, um, the uh, opinion among Cuban Americans is now more divided than it has ever been. Uh, in some cases, uh, for some measures uh, of normalization, um, Cuban Americans now favor them. Uh, and indeed, um, when Obama ran in 2008, he received uh, uh, a standing ovation at the Cuban American National Foundation, which was the sort of peak organization of, of hardline um, Cuban uh, American opposition to normalization of relations um, uh, when he announced that he was going to loosen travel 
uh, rules uh, and um, try to make it easier for Cubans to travel to Cuba. Uh, and there's considerable evidence that um, many Cuban Americans uh, think the embargo is silly uh, or, um, or at worst counterproductive. So I think um, the Florida electoral votes that once, once went to Republican candidates and anybody that stood up to Fidel Castro, um, not just in Florida, actually, but also in New Jersey, where there are a substantial portion of the electorate, are no longer guaranteed, um, which should make it easier politically for the administration to deal with Cuba. Uh, and given the changes that have taken place in Cuba already, and the extent to which Cuban Americans are indirectly through their relatives investing in the liberalization of the Cuban economy, and the extent to which they are now traveling to Cuba as restrictions have been lifted, uh, I think augurs well for the, for the future of U.S.-Cuban relations. On the other hand, it is also, it is also the case that uh, there is no great benefit um, to the administration from, uh, that anybody can perceive uh, f uh, to um, uh, adopting a sensible policy toward the island. So uh, since there, there's no great pressure in that direction, um, the likelihood that we'll have a, a sensible policy toward Cuba seems to me to be uh, still quite limited. I mean, there's, there are talks, but there are all kinds of obstacles on both sides because there's such a long history of distru distrust. David Makinson, LSE. Two quick questions. One, you didn't mention Russia at all. Does that sure. mean you think there are no major dilemmas there? Second question, uh, given the likelihood of a Sunni takeover in uh, Syria, do you see that there is a prospect for Sunni-Shiite confrontation throughout the Middle East? And what... Uh, could that, what implications could that have for the U.S. policy? Mm -hmm. I, I think in the case of Russia, right, I didn't mention Russia. Um, uh, I think the effort of the Obama administration to reset relations uh, is going to have to be repeated about once every six months. Um, there doesn't seem to be uh, a, a convergence of interest on, on any international issue that the Russians and the U.S. Uh, can see eye to eye on. The Russians are still deeply suspicious of the United States and for reasons that they find good and convincing. Um, and they're not in a mood uh, to sacrifice long-term relationships with other countries just because the United States um, uh, doesn't like them. So, uh, but the United States is, is not likely to pay a great deal of attention to Russian concerns, um, certainly much less than Europeans would, because uh, uh, the, the Russian geopolitical and economic um, relationship with the United States is, so, is now so distant. So I, I, I don't think um, the Obama people have given any evidence that they are that they see this as a huge concern, um, perhaps short-sighted, since um, uh, all of those weapons or most of them, um, which the Soviet Union had, are still in the hands of the Russian government. Uh, so there should be a revival of efforts to reduce the number of nuclear weapons on both sides. Um, the Russians have an interest in doing this independently of other issues. So. Um, uh, and that's the one sort of treaty I think the, the Obama administration could get through the Senate without much difficulty. In the, ca the case of Syria, you suggest one of the many catastrophes that um, misplaying the region could produce. Um, one can imagine um, uh, Sunni-Shia conflict uh, reverberating throughout the Middle East in ways that, are, that would be catastrophic um, for Lebanon, as well as Syria, and for for Iraq, um, uh, uh, as as well as other countries, um, so 
I think we're in for a period of considerable political instability, um, and how broadly that instability uh, spreads uh, and how violent it becomes is anybody's guess. Um, there are probably Middle Eastern experts in the room that can see the outlines of impending catastrophes, and there are many scenarios that I've been reading um, more clearly than I can. Uh, hello, uh, Ayla Mostaret. Uh, given the fact that you haven't mentioned the Balkans region, I'm just wondering uh, what are your thoughts, uh, especially given the fact how much money and foreign aid the USA government mm -hmm. uh, has delivered in Bosnia over the last 15 years. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think the Balkans have, like Lat most of Latin America, disappeared from the map of, of um, threatening issues that the Obama administration is going to worry about. There's considerable interest within the administration in maintaining um, the kinds of positive relationships that develop toward the end of the, of the conflicts in the region, but um, un until, um, uh, un until some crisis emerges, I doubt whether anybody in the White House will pay much attention to the Balkans. What's that? You look in vain for anybody uh, um, uh, to make pronouncements about the Balkans in the, in the Obama administration. Uh, it's, um, it's, uh, the, um, it's not a region of top importance for American policymakers. So likely, if constructive things can be done at the level of functionaries in the State Department, they will happen. Uh, but beyond that, I'd, uh, it, it would be I would be surprised if the Balkans, uh, again, um, attracted the attention of folks in the National Security Council or in the White House. A lot of hands still going up, John. Can we try three at a go? Sure. Gentlemen here, and the other two people that are the microphones are already at the top. Uh, Professor Coastworth, um, it's a pleasure to uh, see you speak uh, at the LSE. I'm a Columbia alum, and LSE, of course, is the other great university in the other great English language city. Mm -hmm. um, two questions. Uh, one has to do with um, the energy independence that the U.S. is mm -hmm. surprisingly, but through technology, soon to achieve. Um, I understand that China's also got a uh, huge shale resources. So we got two major countries, mm -hmm. the, the current power and I guess based on your analysis, the, the, the next power, that are both going to have a very different relationship to energy consumption and imports, in particular from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if you can uh, shed some light as to what will happen, will happen uh, if that would be the case with the U.S. involvement in the Middle East, given the fact that if we've been hearing this talk for the last uh, five or six administrations, mm -hmm. the Persian Gulf and related military ge geographical interests mm -hmm. uh, would be uh, one of the top two or three topics. Mm -hmm. Second, uh, thanks for your historical perspective on, um, on these transitions of great powers. Uh, the U.K. example is particularly uh, instructive. I guess the one thing I'm a little puzzled about because I hear it so much about China being the next power, is that even 50 years before the transition from UK to uh, US, the US is already a much larger country, far greater population, and already had a larger 
uh, industrial base and per capita income. Yeah. So it was inevitable. Um, mm -hmm. The only, in fact, well, maybe if the if the Europeans didn't fight two incredibly self-destructive wars, it might have been a slower transition. Yeah. But in the case, it was inevitable. Mm -hmm. China, I'm not quite sure. Uh, it's a very poor country still. One quarter of the, the per capita GDP. To the extent they have soft power, it's not clear to me what they are, what it is. And hard power, they certainly don't have a, a worldwide network of military bases right. offered by normally third, uh, independent third parties mm -hmm. and countries that the U.S. has and enjoy over the world. Yep. So it's a little unclear to me what, if anything, would succeed the U.S. Uh, there might be a decline, but why do you posit that uh, China is the invisible next party? Thanks. Mm -hmm. It's a, a big question, but take the other two with it. Yeah. Uh, hi. Uh, hi, Professor Coatsworth. I'm Alfred Wong. I'm a first-year international relations student here at the LSE. Um, well, this is also a, a question relating to energy independence as well as to climate change, which you mentioned as one of the uh, two uh, challenges facing the Obama administration. Uh, this morning, there was a Reuters article about how Obama spent one minute out of about 20 minutes in his inauguration speech yesterday uh, on climate change, and this was hailed by um, leaders of, of in this issue around the world as a sign that Obama was about to get serious on climate change, both internationally and domestically, hopefully. Um, but uh, as you just said, um, the U.S. is perhaps on the verge of achieving energy independence, through, but this is uh, through a process of fracking, which is a very contentious environmental issue. And so my question is, this, um, to in the next four years, uh, what, how do you think Obama will, will balance the needs for climate change and reforms in that direction with needs for energy, and energy independence and policies uh, in that direction? Thank you. Thank you. And there's one more up there. Yeah. Hello. We'll have one um, more round. I'm Yi Zhang, also from LSE. And uh, I want to ask a question about the sustainability. You, you, you said that America has not, is not so successful in the sustainability side. But according to my knowledge, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, in the, uh, America is one of the few countries who have successfully reduced the carbon dioxide emission in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And in contrast, uh, Europe, it is, uh, it is an area where they have very strict uh, policies and uh, relatively more ambitious targets about uh, curbing the climate change, but the uh, carbon dioxide emission is increasing. So under this condition, I do not see a very urgent necessity for, um, for U.S. government to pose more strict policies about climate change. How do you think about that? Yeah. Thank you. So um, on the China question, um, my, my own view is that, um, is that in a sense you're right, that the transition that's going to play, take place in East Asia is going to play out over a much longer time frame um, than um, many are assuming in, in the Obama administration, that there will be bumps along the way, uh, but that it's not likely, um, even though the Chinese economy may, in another decade or two, become uh, larger in total than the United States, uh, the fact that its per capita income will be substantially lower for decades more um, uh, limits the, st the extent to which uh, the two countries will be uh, will be in competition and in the capacity of the Chinese to project power um, uh, on the international stage. Um, I, I, I also um, believe um, that uh, the, the new administration in China m may encounter um, may preside over two important trends. 
One of them is a reorientation of Chinese economic policy toward the development of internal consumption, um, because there are lots of internal pressures. Um, wages have already been rising rather rapidly, reducing the competitiveness of certain of the Chinese export industries. Uh, and uh, there are, secondly, even more pre internal pressures uh, from, the, from elements of the population that want to see the benefits of economic growth more rapidly distributed. I don't see how China can continue with a GDP that's in, uh, increasing more rapidly than consumption, um, which means that the share of investment, and mostly public investment, in the Chinese economy is just reaching enormous proportions. They've built hundreds of miles of fast trains, uh, for example, and, well, you all have had some success with this, but we haven't, in the United States, managed to build even one. Um, but there comes a time when you have all of your, you've built all the fast trains you can, um, and uh, so I, th I think the, the turn towards the kinds of investments internally um, that will be more uh, directly um, perceived as benefits by the population, education, for example, and health, as opposed to massive infrastructure projects and uh, wage policies that will tend to allow wages to rise gradually um, uh, are likely to be um, uh, um, an important aspect of the new regime, or at least that's how I interpret uh, what the new president is saying, uh, and I think that's itself a response to a second phenomenon, which is the rise of internal protests and discontent that are increasingly being expressed in public ways, that the new Chinese government seems at least less strictly um, trying to censor than in the past. So I, I, I think you're exactly right, that this is a much slower process uh, than many imagine. Chinese energy independence is likely to be a pretty slow process as well. Uh, they do have um, we don't know the extent to it. Um, shale, oil and gas resources that could be exploited using the, the technology developed in the United States. Um, anything that makes people in, um, energy independent of the Middle East strikes me as a step forward in reducing the amount of meddling that outsiders are doing uh, not, with not very constructive results. So I, I think that's, it would be great if it happened. The, um, it is true that President Obama, uh, in his uh, second inaugural address, mentioned climate change and went on about it for a couple of sentences. Um, it is also true that um, efforts to introduce into Congress any sensible legislation other than what has already been passed, which involves some subsidies for um, alternative energy companies, um, which the Republicans now have, um, uh, are now denouncing, and certainly any other measure, uh, anything like cap, uh, cap and trade. Um, 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 greater controls that would require on emissions that would require legislation that seems to me at least for the next two years to be an impossible dream uh, if the administration's policy is um, successful, that is if its strategy is successful and the Democrats regain control of the House of Representatives then I think one could begin to talk about an energy agenda that's more likely to be achieved on the question of fracking uh, and its consequences, um, the best that opponents of fracking in the, uh, that's um, uh, this, what's it called? Um, it's the short term for the process that um, extracts shale, gas and oil, uh, shale, petroleum and, and gas. Um, the best that opponents of uh, this, these processes have been able to argue is that the scientific results uh, about pollution, the danger of pollution, uh, are inconclusive. There are, uh, the, the um, EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, has not been able to document a single case in which groundwater has been polluted as a result of fracking. Um, it may be that, that we're just missing something. But since the fracking takes place, hundreds of f uh, feet, 
uh, more than a thousand feet in some cases below the water table where drinking water is um, the, um, and regulations seem to be developing to make it make it um, even safer to drill past those water resources uh, to prevent leakage um, it, it, it seems to me that um, this energy revolution that we're currently ex experiencing is going to go on for some time um, uh, and the opposition to it is not going to be as great as, as you might imagine uh, it would be if there were some documented cases of, of environmental dangers. Um, so on, uh, on the issue of carbon emissions, um, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think the United States should be doing more than it's doing now and should be playing more of a leadership role in the international community in securing um, binding international agreements to reduce carbon emissions. Um, but uh, the likelihood that the administration can um, can um, uh, see itself clear to uh, securing, to taking a leadership role when it would not be able to get a, a, a treaty signed to this effect through the Congress strikes me as, as fairly small. Um, so we have made some progress. The administration by executive fiat has uh, um, required our automobile industries uh, to produce more uh, fuel-efficient cars. And we may find technological developments uh, in that and in other areas um, which reduce carbon emissions in the U.S., but uh, on, on an international scale, that doesn't um, that doesn't seem to be working. I think John, we've just got time for one last question. The young man with the red sweater has been itching to ask it for a while, so we'll let you have the last one on John. The last word. Thank you, Professor Stewart. I'm LSE postgraduate student, and I'm from Afghanistan. Uh, you mentioned Afghanistan a few times, and the American has sacrificed a lot of the last again uh, fight against terrorism mm -hmm. how do they uh, see Pakistan in their foreign policy in the coming four years or is it not important at all fighting against terrorism mm -hmm. thank you um, I, I think the uh, the American administration sees Pakistan as a huge problem uh, and one that's uh, toward the top of its list of um, um, of serious issues that require the president's attention um, Part of the reason for that, of course, is that uh, Pakistan is a nuclear power, and instability uh, or, uh, uh, or mismanagement of um, that nuclear capacity could have catastrophic results. Um, so the United States pays attention to Pakistan as a matter of priority. And the second reason is because of the Northwest Territories where um, the, um, uh, the population moves back and forth uh, across the Afghan border uh, and from which uh, territories which the Afghan government, the Pakistani government does not control directly and areas in which there have been attacks launched uh, um, uh, on um, NATO forces in, in Afghanistan and on the Afghan government. So um, on the first issue, I don't think the American administration has a clue um, uh, how to proceed. Uh, Pakistan is a kind of a mystery. Um, there are efforts to manage relationships well. Uh, they generally don't do very well. Uh, but with respect to the Northwest Territories, the United States does have a policy, and that is to send unmanned uh, drone aircraft um, wherever there's a suspicion that there are uh, folks we don't like moving about. And I, 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 that seems to me to be um, the policy that is likely to continue. somber note on which to end. 
Um, I mean, the, the clock that we're looking at shows it to be about 8 o'clock, so let me just sort of uh, offer three rounds of thanks very quickly. First of all, to everybody that's come out tonight, thank you very much for joining us here at the school. Secondly, to uh, the LSE public events team, uh, we think that we have the best public events program in the world. Uh, John, I'm happy to be told that we don't, but I, I think we do, and please sort of check out LSE public events online. We're always adding... Uh, new speakers to the list and you're all very welcome here at the school but mainly of course I just invite you to show your thanks in the normal way to John for giving tonight's LSC Columbia Public Lecture.